Amen. Good morning, Mars Hill. Awesome. Kids, you, thank you, Marcus. Appreciate that. Kids, as the kids are leaving, I hope you guys have enjoyed the Advent books, uh, the Advent devotion reflection that we, we put together. Uh, I know some got a copy of it. Some are also reading it online. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Our family has been enjoying it. I've loved hearing the stories of our church family and learning a little bit more about each of the people that wrote. Uh, our kids are a little too young to work through the, the, um, the reflection part, so what we do is we read the verse with our kids and have them act the, act the verses out. That's been fun and entertaining to watch. Uh, the other day we were reading Julia Summers, Summerlin's um, reflection, and the verse was uh, in the birth narrative where the angel appears and says, we come bearing good news of a great joy, a Savior is born, fear not. And I asked Daddy Wynn, what did you learn from this verse? And she said, well, Daddy, I thought this was a coloring book, but it's not. I said, okay, great. Well, we still read a verse. What did you learn from the verse? And she said, well, strangers are real and we should fear them, but werewolves are not and we should not fear them. So fear not, I think, was the theme, and I think she got it, even though it was with werewolves. Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Fear not. We have peace because of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are offered an extraordinary peace in the midst of the chaos of the greatest storms of our lives, which is sin, separation from God, Satan, death, and because of that, we can have hope in the midst of the lesser storms of our life, whatever it may be that we face. When you think about peace and you, you think about all the things that are promising peace in our world, politicians promise peace, um, marriages promise peace, if I could just get married I'll experience peace, if I, it, children we think promise peace, if I could just have a kid that would promise peace, if, ideologies promise peace, religions promise peace, everything promises peace. But everything fails to deliver on lasting, true and lasting, deep, soul-deep peace. When we think about the restlessness of our hearts, this time of season, we think, if I could just give a certain gift, maybe that would reconcile and that would bring peace in a certain relationship. Or maybe if I could just get a certain gift, that would bring peace to my life. Or maybe if I could just have some time off or some time with family or some time off from family, that would bring me peace. And again, it never does. It doesn't bring, it brings momentary peace. It brings hollow peace. It doesn't bring lasting, sustaining, soul-deep peace, the peace that Christ offers us. And one reason is because each of those things that promise us peace, attached to that promise is the phrase, you need to. You just need to. You just need to vote for me. You just need to experience this thing. You just need to do this or read that or accomplish this or perform in this way and then you will have peace. But Christianity stands apart. The story of the Bible stands radically separate from that message. It says you cannot do anything to experience peace. It says that we need to look to the one who did something on our behalf and that's how peace is experienced through his work through what he did on the cross. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We need to look to Jesus, and through looking to Jesus, by looking to Jesus, by hoping in him, running to him, fleeing to him, and finding refuge in him, we will experience the peace, the soul-deep peace, the peace that passes understanding, the peace that he offers. 
in the midst of whatever dark circumstances this world throws at us. And so we need to see these two points this morning. First, look to Jesus the Savior. We've been building this series out of Matthew chapter 1 and the birth narrative that Matthew provides there in verse 18 down to 23. And in that, one of the phrases we highlighted was that Matthew says, after the angel appears to Joseph and promises this son and what he's going to do, Matthew says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And he quotes Isaiah But he's not just leaning on Isaiah because we know, as we said, throughout the book of Matthew, over 10 times he says, all this took place to fulfill. So Matthew's constantly looking back to the earliest promises and saying, Jesus' arrival, Jesus' birth, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his person, his work, fulfills something. It fulfills all of those Old Testament promises. So what we've been doing is looking at those earliest promises of Jesus, the earliest promises of a Savior to come. And in this text, we see the angel say something specifically relevant for our, our study this morning, and that's in verse 21. It says, the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This idea of Jesus being a Savior, we call Him our Savior, He is the Savior, it's not new to the New Testament. The New Testament writers are highlighting it, though, and they do it repeatedly throughout, throughout the Gospels and throughout the the rest of the New Testament, constantly highlighting that Jesus is our Savior. In Luke chapter 19, verse, uh, verse 10, Luke says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In Luke's birth narrative, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that, that for unto us, unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. He is our Savior. When we look at Peter, we look at Paul, they both merge things. They say that Jesus is our great God and Savior. He is God and He is our Savior. As we study this word, what does He save us from? From though, what's he saving us from? This Greek word "save," "savior" that's throughout the New Testament, it means to save from, or to snatch up and rescue from serious peril. To snatch up and rescue someone from serious peril, from sure and certain death. To rescue out of or deliver from a direct threat. That's what the Greek word means in the broader Greek culture at this time, and that's what they're using it when they use it in the New Testament. That Jesus has come to snatch us up out of sure and certain death, sure and certain defeat. He is the one who rescues us from calamity, from certain peril. And so the question arises, what is is our peril? What is our calamity? What is it that we are under the threat of? What's the, what's the warning? What's the theme that we are, what is it that we're being rescued from? Well, Matthew says it, the angel says it in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. The rest of the New Testament unpacks what that means. 
The rest of the New Testament writers constantly tell us that what this means is that Jesus came to save us, to rescue us from the power, the penalty, and the punishment of sin. Specifically, to rescue us from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul is articulating his great joy that the Thessalonians have turned from their idols to Jesus. They've turned away from worthless things to the only one of worth, the one who rescues us from the wrath to come, is what Paul says. And then in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 5, Paul articulates this even further, that, that the wrath of God is obvious, it's evident. We are not as we should be. We are not living the way we should be. We're living according to the wrong standard. We're living according to the standard of our own hearts. And therefore, the wrath of God is obvious. It's, it's revealed. It's manifested, he says. It's made known. And that in Romans 5, he says, there's only one who can spare us from the wrath of God. There's only one who is in whom we can hope in or run to or find refuge in to be spared from the wrath of God. That one is Jesus Christ, our Savior. What all of the New Testament writers are saying and what Matthew is saying here is that Jesus, and the text is emphatic, the language, we talked about this in verse 21, is it's emphatic. Jesus and Jesus alone will save his people from their sins. Jesus and Jesus alone can save us from the wrath of God. There are no other alternatives. Anything else is, is, is a straw object that we're hoping in. It, all of our performance, all of our efforts, anything else is empty and will be consumed by the wrath of God. Only Jesus is the sure and safe refuge to which we can retreat. And as Matthew is telling us, and the New Testament writers are telling us, all of this is to fulfill something. In other words, Matthew's saying this is not new to the New Testament. This promise of Jesus being a Savior to which we must look was told thousands of years ago all the way back to the book of Genesis. And as we've looked, we're looking in multiple places in Genesis where these promises are, are given and how the New Testament writers, particularly Matthew, is, is highlighting that Jesus fulfills that. That we need to look to Jesus as our refuge. And the first place we begin to see him as the safe refuge to rescue us from the wrath of God being poured out is in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 in the story of the flood and Noah. You're familiar with the story. When we look to Jesus, as, it, as we're going to learn, when we look to Jesus, we will experience the peace that God offers from the greatest storm of our life. And that's what we need to turn to and explore here in this second point. It's when we trust God at his word, as Noah did. It's when we trust God at his word and we retreat into the ark that we will tr experience true and lasting rescue and peace, the peace that God provides in Jesus. You're familiar with the story as, you, as we read the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and really into, into 9, the story of Noah and the ark. It's one of the most repeated stories, maybe one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's in children's books everywhere. We celebrate this story. And you might be familiar with, with the fact that there are numerous, in almost every culture, flood stories where one is rescued or a family is rescued. There's a story in China. There's a story in Egypt. There's a story in Iraq. There's a, there's a story in South America. There's stories everywhere of one who is being rescued 
through a flood, of a great flood that came on the earth, and one was rescued through it. You're maybe familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. In this story, it, it also talks about a great flood, and it, it talks about one rescued through the flood. But Christianity, the Bible, records a story that's revealed specifically from God. The difference between the, the, the story of the Bible and this, all of those other ancient stories is all of those other ancient stories are ancient memories in these, these different parts of the world trying to explain something that happened but without, with only general revelation, without special revelation, without the specific revealed word of God. And what the Bible is declaring to us is God's revealed word. This is true in reality. And another big distinction between all of those other stories and this story is all of those other stories had multiple gods. A pluralistic society, a pluralistic God, polytheism, and they all were angry with man. They were all upset. Specifically, one story says they were upset because man was making too much noise and they wanted to block man from the earth. And the problem in all of those other ancient stories is that when the gods acted and they sent forth the, the flood, they initiated the flood, they couldn't control it. It was beyond their control and they retreated to the hills for fear of what's happened. But that's not the Bible's story. There is one God and what's happening in this story is that opens up in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 is not man's being too loud but the wickedness of man's heart is on full display. Every bent, every thought, every action of man is bent towards sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought, every action, every inkling of his heart, man's heart was bent towards sin. But what is God's heart in this text? It says that his heart was grieved in verse 6. It grieved him to his heart. While man's heart is bent on sin, God's heart is grieved, wounded by his rebellion. And what we learn in the text is the very heart of God, the very nature of God. He is wounded by our rejection, our rebellion, that he is wounded. And he then promises to pour out his wrath, his judgment. The question we often ask in this text is, is why on earth would God do this? Why on earth would he destroy everything? And it's multiple times, verse 7, verse 13, it says it three different times that he's going to blot out every living thing from the earth except for one. Why would God do this? That's the wrong question. The right question is, why would he spare one? God is an infinitely holy God, and man has rebelled against him. And what we learn in the text is this is a story that's setting up the greatest story of all. That in the midst of all of these sinful people where every person is inclined towards sin and bent towards his own way and, and bent towards rebelling against God, there is one. And we learn about this one, that he is righteous, that he is blameless, it says, and that he walks with God, that he found favor with God. It says that he found favor with God in verse 8. And that word favor means grace. He found grace with God. God pours out his grace. He graciously spares one. And it's not because he's righteous or blameless or walks with God. That is a secondary factor that we learn in verse 9. 
That's, as, that's letting us know this, this is who this is. He stands apart from all of creation, all of the other people. There is one righteous one, and it will be through this one righteous one and the ark that God provides through his work that he will spare, he will offer refuge and hope and peace. So while man plots evil in his heart, God is grieved to his heart. And what do we learn? How is he going to rescue? How is he going to remedy the sin problem? How is he going to rectify these things? He's going to pour out his wrath, but he's going to offer grace. He's going to provide an ark, a place of escape, a place of refuge, a place of hope, a place of peace. God's going to rescue through the ark, and God's going to bring about new creation, we'll see, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And through all of this, God's going to bring about peace and bless the nations. And how does he do it? He does it through the ark. When we look at the text, chapter 6 all the way to chapter 9, there's really two halves to the story, and it's, there's this climax middle part of the story. The first half of the story, what do we see? The rising tide of God's judgment. The wickedness of man and the rising tide of God's judgment. And what do we see in the second half of the story? The receding tide of God's judgment and peace on earth. Well, what happens in the middle? God reminds or affirms Moses, Noah rather, Noah of his covenant. And then he spares Noah in his grace. It's through this righteous one, God provides an ark, a place of covering, a place of peace, a place of refuge. Genesis chapter 6 verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with them. In other words, anyone who trusts God at his word and retreats to the ark will find refuge and the peace that God offers despite the raging storm of his wrath. And then in Genesis 7, 7, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. It's through the ark that peace on earth is established. You say, okay, wait, wait a second, Neil. I've read that story, and I know what happens immediately after that story. And plus, I'm looking around, and peace on earth has not been fully experienced. That's not... That's not what happens? How can you say peace on earth is, is experienced as a result of this story? It, immediately after the story, there's sin within Noah and his family, and, 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 and the, there's sin that happens, and, and catastrophe and calamity begins to happen all over again. How can you say peace on earth is, is established in the story? We have to remember this story is telling us. It's a picture and portrait pointing us to the one who offers true peace. After this story, what do we find? After the flood, after the chaos, in the midst, though the waters are still chaotic and raging on the surface, it says in chapter 8, God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean he forgot about Noah. It means he's, he keeps his covenant. He kept his promise to Noah. And it was through this keeping of the covenant, this keeping of the promise, what do we see? But God, it says in the text, and in Genesis chapter 8, that, that he blew on the waters, that wind, there was a wind that blew on the waters, that wind, the word wind is ruha in, in, in Hebrew, and it's the same word for Holy Spirit, just as in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, that hovered over the waters and blew on the waters. 
And what happens? The waters begin to recede and the land begins to emerge. And then what happens in the text in Genesis chapter 8? The animals are classified. And then what happens? God blesses Noah and his family and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. What are we seeing in this text? It's get into the ark and you will experience new creation and peace as it was intended to be. Retreat to the ark. It's through the ark that you will escape the wrath to come and you will experience new creation and the peace that we are offered. This is the message of the story and it's pointing us to the greater story of Jesus, the only righteous one. Of Jesus, our ark, through whom comes new creation and peace. As you read the story, peace is ultimately the the overarching theme. It's the final analysis and final summary of the story. We often read the text. In in, in Genesis chapter 9, we read about, the the, in in verse 12, verse 16, about God putting the rainbow in the clouds. The, The text, if you read the ESV, some translations translate that rainbow. Others just translate it simply as bow. The word can be translated as rainbow, and it can also be translated as war bow, as in bow and arrow. And when we read the Old Testament over and over again, God's judgment is said to be like arrows sent forth from God's bow. And three times in the text, in verse 12 to 16, it says God put his bow in the clouds. He put his war bow in the clouds. He hung up his bow. He no longer brought forth his bow of judgment, his bow that sends forth lightning repeatedly in the Psalms, his bow that sends forth lightning from the storm. He hung up his bow. There's peace as a result. I love what the the Jesus Storybook Bible points out and observes that, that that bow that we see is pointing upwards where the arrow is directed upwards towards God and not downwards towards us. In other words, what is in the cloud? A reminder, yes, of his covenant. Yes, he will not flood the earth, but it's a reminder that he will take the blow. He will take the wrath of his own judgment on our behalf. And why? So that we can experience his peace. This is what the bow in the clouds is intended to be a reminder of. Amazingly, as we study this, we see that, yes, it's in the two halves of the narrative of the story that, that this, we're, we're, we learn that it's the structure that's telling us that there's these, the rising tide of God's judgment and, and through his provision of an ark then recedes his judgment and, and peace is experienced. But it's also in the drama of the story, not simply the structure of the story, but the drama of the story. This is a brilliant piece of storytelling that, that the author is giving us to tell the same point. Because when we begin the story, we see everything and hear everything from God's perspective. God is speaking. Build Noah. You you are this. I see that you are this. Build this, this ark and construct it in this way and gather the animals. We're hearing everything and seeing everything from God's perspective. And then in the end of the story, we see everything and hear everything from God's perspective. The the covenant is affirmed and, and peace is offered and we're hearing God speak again. But in the middle, God is silent. We don't hear him speak. We don't see things from his perspective. 
We only see things from the perspective of Noah and the family inside the ark. We only hear of what it's like in the ark. In other words, narratively, in the drama of the story, we are sucked into the story. And now we are standing there with Noah and seeing things from his perspective. God is silent in the middle. Why? What happened? We heard him speaking, we hear him speaking, but he's not speaking in the middle. Why? Because God is on the outside of the ark, taking the wind and the lashing and the battering of his own wrath. How do you see that in the text, Neil? It's in verse 16. Building to that point from the narrative structure, from the drama of the story, what happens is in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis verse seven, chapter 7, we, we see three different times the story of the animals. Gather this many animals in this way and these types and do this. Why do we need that three times? Because the author is trying to, to build anticipation. There's, there's judgment has been pronounced from the beginning of the narrative, the beginning of the story. Judgment's been pronounced, and now we're, we're as though we're standing at the entrance of the ark, gathering the animals. Get in the ark. Family, get in the ark. Everybody, get in the ark. And then we hear it in chapter 7. God says one last time to Noah and his family, get in the ark. For seven days, in seven days, my judgment is coming. In other words, what I pronounce to you is going to happen. Judgment is going to occur. And then we see it, the, 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 the anticipation, the, the angst of the story, it builds. Now we're standing there, get everybody in, get everybody in, hurry, hurry. It's as though we're standing with Noah in this perspective. And then in verse 11 of chapter 7, it happens. This urgency is building, the pace is building. But we get this third story of the animals, and that's like, can we not get these animals in the boat? And then verse 11. On the day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. We read this story and we, we hear about the 40 days of rain and, and we hear about it and we think, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad storm. We don't think much about it. In verse 11, it tells us all the fountains of the great deep are bursting forth. It's like the dam is, is broken. It's like the, the, the barricade between us and God, the judgment that he's been restraining, which that's the word that we use in verse 8. It's re, chapter 8. It's restraining and it's like it burst forth. In other words, if we're standing at the entrance trying to get everybody in, the, the climax of the story is building and we are now rushing into the boat along with Noah, along with the animals, and here it is, we're in the boat, everybody here, where's Yahweh? And we turn and we look at the entrance. In the text in verse 16, chapter 7, it says that he shut them in. That word in Hebrew, it means to cover over, it means to take your hand and cover over the entrance. It's, it's, it's clear in the text, he's outside the boat. He's not inside the boat rolling the, the, the entrance over. He's outside. It means to cover over, to place one's hand over, to, to place some object over an entrance. He's covering over. And then, how is he receiving the wrath, Neil? How is he receiving the, the, the rage, the, the storm? I don't, know, I don't see it. Don't forget the ark. 
The ark is receiving the beating. The ark is receiving the tumult. The ark is receiving the torrent. The ark is receiving the, the, the lashing of the wind, the battering of the rain, the, the storm. The ark is receiving the beating. All I'll know and his family are safe inside. Why do we hear God? Why do we not hear God in these middle parts of the story? Why is it from Noah's perspective? Why is it that we're waiting in, with anxiousness for the, for the raven to return and for the, for the pigeon to return? Why is it that we're sucked into this drama because the storyteller is trying to invite us into the boat where we will find peace, into the ark where we will find peace? Why is God silent? Because he's receiving the wrath. He's receiving the punishment. Yahweh shut him in. He covered over. He is blockading the way from his wrath reaching them. What does all this have to do with Advent? What are the implications for us? All of this anticipates this story, all four chapters anticipates and points forward to the true and better righteous one. The true and better ark that receives the beating. That received the lashing. That received the wounds that you and I deserve. All of this is pointing towards Jesus. When you go back and you read the story, go back and read it. Notice that Noah never says a word in the story. He never speaks. We don't have him speaking ever in this text. What we do, what all we learn about is that he has the grace of God, the favor of God, that he's a righteous one, blameless, and walks with God. All we learn about Noah is that in the midst of all of the sinful humanity where no one obeys, there is one who obeys. And that's repeated over and over in the text. He did as the Lord commanded him. What is it pointing us to? It's pointing us to the only righteous one. Our perfect substitute who obeyed perfectly. Who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Who lived the life we could not live. Who obeyed God perfectly. Who is our substitute. Who died on the cross. Taking the penalty for our sins that we could not pay and live up to. When we re realize this story is a type, in other words, Noah is a type, he's pointing us to Jesus. He's, he's, he's pointing us ultimately that God, all these thousands of years before Jesus came, he's pointing us to Jesus, then it begins to make sense. When we read in the text, immediately after this story, how, how sin still is in Noah and his family, and it's still blossoms after the story, what we learn is that though all sinful humanity is, is obliterated in this story, sin is not. In other words, Noah's not enough. Noah's not sufficient for the task. Noah's not sinless. Noah's a picture and pointer to the sinless Savior Jesus, who is sufficient for the task, who can take the wind and the rains. And that leads us to the ark. The ark is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the ark we must retreat into. He is the refuge. He is the place of safety in the midst of the raging storms and chaos of sin, of separation from God, of Satan, of death. He is our true and better ark. He is the one that takes the winds. Only in him can we survive the battering of God's wrath. 
in terms of implications for us right here, right now. The most important message that this story is telling us, that Matthew is pointing us to, is that we must look to Jesus if we hope to experience God's peace. That we cannot experience peace apart from Jesus. We will not experience peace apart from Jesus. We will not escape the wrath of God's judgment. We will not be saved, spared, rescued, scooped up from sure and certain peril by looking to anything other than Jesus. That is the message of Genesis. That is the message of Matthew. That is the message of the Bible. Jesus is our means of escape. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our peace. Peace with God, peace within, and peace with one another. Only in Him will we experience peace. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that it's through Christ that we experience peace with God. We're alienated from God because of sin. But all who hope in Him, all who retreat to Him, will experience the peace of God. All who hope in Jesus will experience God hanging up the bow turning and averting his wrath. Why? Because he poured it out on his son so that you and I could experience his peace. That's the most important message. That is the story. Jesus offers peace in the greatest storms of our lives. I know what many of you are thinking, you know, Neil, thanks for that theology lesson. That's wonderful. But I need peace right now in the calamity of my own life. I need peace right here, right now in the calamity of my own marriage. I need peace right here, right now in the calamity of my own parenting. I need peace right here, right now in the calamity of my family dynamics. I need peace right here, right now in the calamity of my, my business, my profession, whatever it is. We, we're begging for peace and we're saying, thanks, Neil, for this theology lesson. That's wonderful. But I need peace right here, right now. What does that have to do with peace right here, right now? It has everything to do with peace right here, right now. The Bible makes it clear that the greatest calamity of your life and my life is not whether we can pay the bills. It's whether we have one who paid the debt that we owe to God. The greatest calamity of our lives right here, right now, is not our horizontal circumstances. Those are lesser and secondary to the greater calamity of our separation from God of our alienation from Him, of our sin, of our rebellion, and the wrath of God that is being poured out, the great waters of the deep of God's wrath are being poured out. Are you safe and secure in the refuge that He provides? That's the greatest message. And the reason it has to do with everything, has everything to do with the right here, right now, is if He can't do that, if Jesus cannot avert the wrath of God, the greatest calamity of your life and mine, then you have no hope in the lesser circumstances of whatever you may be facing. And I want you to understand, I'm not minimizing whatever circumstances you're facing. When I say lesser, I'm not trying to minimize or demean the suffering and the adversity and the, and the, and the trials and the calamity that you're facing. I'm simply saying it's secondary to the primary issue of our lives. This is what the Bible's laying out for us. If we don't have hope that he can conquer the grave, we don't have hope. If we don't have hope that he can avert the wrath of God, that he can absorb it, that he can take it, then we don't have hope that we have peace with God, and therefore we can't have hope that we'll have peace any other means, any other way. 
but reverse it. If we do have hope that Jesus is a true and sufficient ark, that he's a true and sufficient protector against the wrath of God, that he is the refuge in which we can retreat and he can take the brunt. He can bear the weight of the holy wrath of God on his capable, broad shoulders. If he can do that, then I have hope here and now. If he can offer peace through that, then I have peace no matter what I face. And that's the secondary implication for us right here, right now. This is the hope that we live by here and now. This is the peace that we have here and now. And this is the message that Jesus himself teaches us, that the Bible teaches us. Job chapter 12 verse 14, that if he builds, no man can tear down. Or if he tears down, no man can rebuild. And it says, if he shuts in, same word, If he covers over, no man can uncover. What's Job telling us? What is the New Testament writers teaching us? That if he can protect us in his safe, secure, capable hands from the greatest tumult, the greatest wrath, the greatest torrent that we've ever faced, separation from him and the wrath of God, the raging waters of God's wrath, then we are safe and secure in any circumstances we face on this earth. That's hope. That's peace. That's real, lasting peace. That's not tied up in plastic trinkets and treasures that will break and wear out. It's not tied up in circumstances or experiences. It's not tied up in the temporary, fleeting nature of this world. It's tied up in a sure and certain, imperishable, Peter says, treasure that's locked away in heaven, in God's vault. Is that the hope you have? Is that the peace that you have? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the peace that he offers. This message has everything to do with Advent. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, there's the promised son to come. The promised son, one of the many names that he will have is Prince of Peace. In chapter 9, verse 7, it says, And of his peace... There will be no end. Meditate on that truth and that reality. His peace is not fleeting. It's not temporary. The promised Savior, born a child, will offer and secure peace that's permanent and lasting. Fast forward to the New Testament and what do we see when the angel appears to Mary? It says in the text that she's trembling. She's afraid in this moment. She does not know what's going on. And this message of hope, this message of peace is preached to her. And then what do we see in Joseph? Joseph in the story of Matthew 1, is, is afraid, it says. He's terrified of the circumstances and situation. He's anxious. His heart is tumultuous. And what does the angel preach to these two people covered in fear? Jesus is your peace. And then the angel appears to the shepherds. You know who shepherds are, right? Shepherds are lowly. They're outcast. They're considered unclean and dirty. They're in the fields with the sheep. This is why. They're they're forgotten. And yet they get the front row seats to the Savior being born. The angel appears to them as preaching peace to the forgotten. 
And then it, the angel appears to the, to the wise men. And, and, and who are the wise men? Gentiles, the irreligious, the outcast. The angel appears and preaches peace to the forsaken, to the fearful, to the forgotten, and to the forsaken. Jesus is your peace. This is, has everything to do with Advent. Fast forward to you, to your own heart, to your own circumstances, and Jesus preaches this same message in John chapter 14, verse 27. In John chapter 14, 27, to a, a group of fearful, afraid disciples, he says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Not fleeting, not temporary, not plastic. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I love this verse. Jesus says to his disciples, my peace I give to you. That word peace that he uses is irene. It's a state of being. It's an identity. It's not an experience that's up and down with the roller coasters of life and life circumstances and whatever else we may feel. May, may experience. It's his rock-solid and secure identity. And what is Jesus' identity? He knows that he has the full, unadulterated face and acceptance of God the Father. My peace I give to you. And he contrasts it with the peace of the world that's fleeting and that's troubled. The hearts that are troubled, he says there. And what I love about this is Jesus says, my peace I give to you, and he contrasts it with troubled hearts. The word troubled me is, is the Greek word terasso, and it means to be agitated waters. What does Jesus offer us but peace in the midst of the agitated waters of our restless hearts? And peace in the midst of the agitated waters of the wrath of God. Jesus offers real peace, his peace, his identity, his quietness, his rest, his hope. And of his peace, there will be no end. Is that your peace this morning? Is, is he the ark that you have fled to, hoped in, run to, found refuge in? Is he the one that you've retreated into and found peace? His peace is qualitatively and quantitatively radically supernatural and superior to any peace that anyone on this earth will ever promise us, anything on this earth will ever promise us. His peace is real. His peace is the peace of God, peace with God, peace within, and peace with one another. Do you know and have that peace this morning? Have you fled into the ark, escaped into the ark of Jesus and therefore know the peace that he offers. What ark are you running to? What ark do you regularly retreat to and run to for hope and peace? Is it Jesus? If you have fled into the ark of Christ. If you have trusted in, hoped in, run into and found refuge in Jesus. Then wonderful. Don't be a grace graduate. Return constantly to this scene. 
standing in the safety of the ark. This week, I'm reading this text. It's not uncommon. You have these experiences where you, man, I'm so moved by this text. This week, I'm weeping over this text because I picture myself in this ark, safe and secure, looking back at the entrance, and I see Jesus covering it over, protecting me, doing what every father would do for his children, sparing them while taking the brunt. Doing what every husband would do for his wife, protecting them. To cover over means to reach over and to, to guard, to protect. He does this for me. Do not be a grace graduate. Look to the cross where he covered over your sins. Be moved and melted by that. Find peace and hope in that. And then forgive as he forgave. Love as he loved. Serve as he served. Live out of an overflow of that grace. And then lastly, have hope and peace here and now, regardless of the circumstances you're facing. I love what William Cooper and John Newton say in, in a hymn that they wrote together. Be gone unbelief. They say this. Be gone unbelief. My Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform with Christ in the vessel. I smile at the storm. Can you do that? Do you have that kind of hope, that kind of confidence in whatever earthly circumstance or storm that you're facing? Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, Tis mine to obey, tis his to provide. Tis mine simply to do as he commands, to retreat into the ark. Tis mine to simply do as he commands, to love, serve, go, give, sacrifice, whatever it may be. It's his to provide, no matter the circumstances. So I trust him, and I smile at the storm. Can you do that? Because Christ is your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so beautiful, so amazing that you write these stories for us, that you tell us that you worked this into human history, I just cannot fathom it, so that you can teach us about the one ark that we must retreat into, the one righteous one that we must trust in. You do all of this to show us, to teach us, to tell us about Jesus. May there not be a single person in this room that leaves without running into the ark of Christ. For those that have hoped in Christ and run into him, trusted in him, may they be encouraged this morning. May we all be renewed and refreshed that with you in the vessel, more importantly with me in you, I can smile at the storm. May we all have that kind of hope. May we all have that kind of peace. May it be so transformative that it's so obvious to everyone around us that we're not moved. We're not going with the highest highs and the lowest lows. We are rock solid steady because our anchor is in Christ. And may it testify to your glory and your greatness of your stability and the raging waters of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.